The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World. Episode 13 The Visigoths. We have learned much about the Visigoths already during this podcast series, but now comes the time when we put all of the pieces of the jigsaw together and tell the wonderful story of the history of the Visigoths, right back from when the Romans saw them emerge as one of the Germanic tribes terrorising their northern frontier, all the way through to the invasion of the kingdom in Spain by Islamic invaders from Africa. Our story must begin in the 3rd century. Many historians have speculated about the origin of the Goths and recommend that the peoples referred to in scripts as the Gutones are the precursor to the Goths mentioned in later scripts. Speculation suggests that the ancestors to the Goths may have migrated from the lands of southern Scandinavia and in turn the Vistula River in the modern country of Poland, but I stress that this is theory only. The Germanic tribes from this period leave us with no written records and references to the different tribes are found in Roman texts that quote names given to these tribes by the Romans. The Goths are the ancestral race of the Visigoths, one of two extremely well-known Gothic peoples of the first millennium, with the other being the Ostrogoths. We will plot the course of history relating to Gothic advances up to the realisation of the distinction between Visigoths and Ostrogoths before following the story of the Visigoths through to the 8th century, while the story of the Ostrogoths will be tracked in an alternative episode about post-Roman Italy. The Roman Empire was an absolute powerhouse in the early 2nd century, barely beatable and completely dominant over all of the lands in and around the Mediterranean Sea. Their repeated aggressions in their borderlands with the Parthians of Persia caused them to be exposed to an unknown plague that proved to be one enemy that the Romans could not prevent from killing large numbers of their population. As such, this meant that the Germanic tribes of their northern frontiers saw opportunities to exploit the weaknesses of the Romans, and this led to a considerable amount of diplomacy between the Romans and these tribes. We can possibly suggest that Goths were among the known Germanic tribes of the early 3rd century, and we may even be able to suggest that the Romans had an agreement to pay a tribute to the Goths as a deterrent against raiding Roman territory. This is because it is thought that when the Carpi, 
a people of hazy origin and ethnicity, invaded the lands of Moesia in 238, that they did this because other tribes such as the Goths were receiving tributes, while they were not. Moesia was the region of Europe centred around the lower Danube River. However, it is also apparent that the Romans would have been utilising the services of Carpi and Gothic mercenaries to assist them with their conflicts against the new Sasanian Empire of Persia. During the 3rd century, the Roman Empire was riddled with political turmoil as emperors were constantly under threat of challenge and assassination from rivals and this would also lead potential contenders to the imperial throne to seek alliances from barbarian tribes, a catch-all term used for less civilised tribal peoples. This meant that today's friends of the Roman Empire would be tomorrow's enemies and in the year 251, the Gothic king Caniva went to battle with the Roman Emperor Decius in Moesia at the Battle of Abritus and scored a famous victory. This victory is compared to the Roman disaster in the Teutoburg Forest in the year 9 and the Roman defeat at Adrianople in 378 in terms of the biggest disastrous Roman defeats to Germanic tribes. King Caniva is often regarded as a great military ruler in an era when the Romans couldn't find a leader who could rule with any freedom of authority. This meant that the Goths were free to establish an area of power in the lands of the modern country of Ukraine, where they could make calculated plans for incursions into the tumultuous Roman Empire. In 267, the Goths embarked on an ambitious campaign from the mouth of the Dniester River, southwards along the banks of the Black Sea. They would successfully travel through the Bosphorus Strait, into the Propontis, and then beyond the Hellespont, into the Aegean Sea. The Goths would attack Athens, Sparta, Crete and Rhodes, before turning back to the Balkans. The Romans would get their act together and cut the Goths off and dish out a crushing defeat at the Battle of Nasus in 269. Estimates of tens of thousands of Gothic soldiers are suggested to have died in the battle and this would take all of the fire out of the Goths as a major force as the remnants would humbly return back north of the Danube River. The weakened Goths would go back to being a relatively minor tribal entity on the borderlands of the Roman Empire, with some Goths being allowed to settle some Anatolian territories of the Roman Empire and others still carrying out raids along the Roman border. This would likely remain the state of play for the next century until a major migration into European lands would cause the Goths to be the focus of attention yet again. The Impact of the Huns As we have learned during the previous volume, the Huns arrived in Europe in the latter half of the 4th century. Their arrival meant that they came into contact with the lands controlled by the Goths to the north of the Danube River. The Hunnic arrival meant that the Goths would start to leave their homelands and arrive on the Roman frontier, 
looking to cross into Roman territory and escape the Huns who were terrorising their lands. The Roman Empire at this stage in its history was being governed by multiple emperors and the eastern provinces were under the rule of Emperor Valens. The Romans allowed the Goths to pass into their territory, possibly around the year 376, where they sought refuge. Originally, this was suggested to have been somewhat of an amicable transaction, until reports of Roman exploitation of the immigrants began to surface. Roman leaders and their loyal servants began to make it impossible for the immigrants to earn their keep by overpricing resources, and soon there was famine, and this would create an uprising. The Roman leaders underestimated the abilities of the Goths, and soon found that they were on the back foot and defending themselves against revolts. The Gothic problem became so important that Emperor Valens had to abandon his campaigns against the Sasanian Persians to come and deal with the problem. Despite attempts to reach an agreement, a major battle took place at Adrianople. The result was a shocking victory for the Goths, who not only killed some of the major Roman military generals, but also seemingly took the life of the Roman Emperor Valens, who was never seen again. The Roman Emperor in the West, Gratian, would attempt to suppress the Goths, but eventually it was realised that the Goths were too powerful and it would be a complete waste of both sides' resources to continue their war, especially with other common enemies, such as the Huns, in the environs. So an agreement to allow Goths to settle in the Balkans in return for giving military service to the Romans was reached in the early 380s. Despite attempts to reach a comfortable agreement between the Goths and the Romans, the tensions would still be high as the Goths still felt that they were not receiving the agreed treatment from the Romans in return for their military support. A new leader would now rule the Goths and his name was Alaric and his contribution to history is significant. Alaric himself had fought alongside the Roman army and alongside another military general with Germanic blood called Stilicho. It would be Stilicho who would be entrusted to try and put down the rebellion of Alaric, but once again the power of the Goths needed to be given a high amount of respect. Alaric proved too elusive to Stilicho, and the Romans had to move to give Alaric a high-ranking military position within their empire to prevent him from rampaging through the Balkans. When the Romans felt that they had given Alaric all that they had been prepared to give him, they neglected him, and so he undertook his own ambitions again, causing chaos in and around the Roman lands in the Balkans in the early 5th century, and then even daring to head west into the lands of Italy. Stilicho would attempt to deal with the Alaric problem once again, but Stilicho himself was not only trying to deal with the raids of other Germanic tribes such as the Vandals, but also his political enemies within the Roman Empire itself. Despite Stilicho's fall from grace, Alaric continually raided Italian lands, culminating in the sacking of the iconic city of Rome in the year 410, an event that is associated as significant within the story of the slow death 
of the Western Roman Empire throughout the 5th century. Alaric would not live to enjoy the outcome of Gothic rewards for their achievements, dying soon afterwards. Alaric's forces had headed west from the Balkans, and we can distinguish these Gothic forces as the Visigoths, and they may well have had a distinct ethnic origin within the Gothic peoples, which predates the crossing of the Danube in the 370s. Those Goths who didn't migrate with Alaric would be the ones to establish a permanent power base in the Balkans, and who we refer to as the Ostrogoths. So we can pinpoint King Alaric as a man who can help us to clearly distinguish the Visigoths from the Ostrogoths. The Visigothic sacking of Rome in 410 was symbolic of the fact that the newly distinct Western Roman Empire was unable to cope with the requirements to defend its nonetheless vast territories from Germanic incursions that had been exacerbated by the Hunnic arrival and migration into Europe that had been taking place since the later decades of the 4th century. It became clear to the Romans that they had to very quickly forgive the Visigoths for their behaviour against them and reward them enough that they would feel obliged to support them against their other enemies. It was the Roman Emperor Honorius who was in a desperate position. It was he who did not stand up for the military general Stilicho, which led to Stilicho's execution in 408. It was he who was unable to prevent Alaric from sacking the important Roman city of Rome in 410. It was also he who would grant the new Visigothic king Atholf his own sister's hand in marriage and a new territory to settle in the Gallic lands of Aquitaine, centred at the city of Toulouse. The Visigothic kingdom would exist as a subject and ally to the Western Roman Empire. The Visigothic king, Valia, would wage war against the Vandals, who by this time had abandoned the Gallic lands that they had been raiding since the previous decade and ventured south into Hispania. Various Vandal and Alan tribes in northern Hispania were defeated and the remaining Vandal tribes were pushed further south and even across the Strait of Gibraltar into North Africa while the Visigoths were rewarded by the expansion of their heartlands into the northeast of the Iberian Peninsula. King Valia's successor was King Theodoric. King Theodoric's reign as the king of the Visigoths was long and significant and it would coincide with the rise of a man called Flavius Etius, a man who was a significant Roman military general, potentially with a degree of Germanic blood and someone who as a child had been a hostage of the Huns and, beforehand, a hostage of the Visigoths during Alaric's reign. Theodoric would initially look to exploit the opportunities to expand his territories while the elite statesmen of Rome would compete for supremacy. Etius would play his part in preventing Theodoric from overstepping his mark. If we take an overview of European politics during the 4th and 5th centuries, it appears that the Huns expanded into Europe, forcing Germanic tribes out of their lands into Roman lands and resulting in a huge battle between the Romans and the Huns 
in the middle of the 5th century, pitting Etius against Attila the Hun. The reality is that the political situation was much more complicated, with Etius actually having a very significant political relationship with the Huns, making agreements with them for military support against common Germanic enemies such as the Burgundians. The Germanic tribes had no loyalty to each other, with all of them looking to protect their own distinct interests. In the main part, Etius would be operating under the rule of the Western Roman Emperor, the child emperor, Valentinian III. Attila would be the ruler of the Huns when Etius requested assistance against the Burgundians in the 430s. By this time, Emperor Valentinian III was approaching his majority and King Theodoric was the firmly established long-serving king of the Visigoths. The Western Roman Empire was diminishing in size dramatically as various foreign factions were capturing Roman lands, leading the Romans to abandon the lands of its extreme boundaries such as Britannia and offering territory to factions such as the Visigoths in order to rely on their assistance. Despite Etius's admirable abilities as a military leader, he could only account for the events taking place in Middle Europe. It was Valentinian's problem to deal with when the Vandals conquered North Africa. Etius had enough to deal with in his own geographical area. The culmination of this political theatre was at the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in 451. Attila the Hun invaded Western Roman territory in Gaul and Valentinian allowed Etius to defend these lands. Etius would be supported by Theodoric and the Visigoths, who may have feared that Attila had ambitions towards Visigothic territory. Etius successfully defended Gallic territory from Attila, and the historical intricacies of the battle and its outcome have been a subject for intense debate between historians. Generally speaking, the defence of Western Roman territory was just delaying the inevitable decay of the Western Roman Empire. So any celebration would have either been short-lived or tainted by the reality of the increasingly desperate situation. Although Attila would continue to try to raid Roman territory, he just didn't have the resources to complete the job and he had to go back to reconsolidate the Hunnic position as for the Visigoths, not only had they been on the winning side, but their own lands remained untouched, and they would have more leverage over the Western Romans, now being able to claim that Attila would have marched through Gaul without their help. The one thing that the Visigoths didn't have was their king Theodoric, who after a long and successful reign had perished in the battle. By the end of the year 455, less than five years after this battle, Attila himself had died back in his heartlands. And both Etius and Valentinian III were also deceased. Etius had been murdered at the hands of a paranoid and jealous Emperor Valentinian III before those loyal to Etius returned to assassinate Valentinian himself. 
Visigothic independence. In the second half of the 5th century, the Visigoths had become a powerful entity in their own right and did not necessarily need to bow down to the Romans, even if they did still need to show them a certain degree of respect. The Visigoths carried with them their brand of Aryan Christianity, a typical religious choice of Germanic tribes who were converted, but also a brand of Christianity that the Roman constitution had actively tried to label as incorrect with their 4th century Christian councils such as the Nicene Creed, which promoted the Trinitarian point of view, which led to Catholic Church principles. The Goths are also among the earliest Germanic tribes to have embraced Christianity, with a conversion believed to have possibly occurred during the First Gothic Wars and the Battle of Adrianople. Now that the centre of Visigothic culture was much further west and the centre of the Roman world had migrated to a permanent home in the east, the question of Visigothic religion was unlikely to be challenged, or at least was not a pressing priority. The Romans were much more concerned about the activities of barbarian tribes who moved against them and their dependence on the Visigoths for support became more apparent when the Western Roman Emperor Avitus encouraged the Visigothic king Theodoric II to invade the lands of Hispania. In fact, Avitus ruled the Western Roman Empire with the blessing of the Visigoths, who supported his personal claim to the imperial throne against his rivals. Since the departure of the Vandals into North Africa, the dominant non-Roman peoples of Hispania were the Suebi. The Suebi had been a part of the mass movement of Germanic tribes from Middle Europe into Gaul at the beginning of the century which coincided with Alaric's sacking of Rome. Now they had firmly established a kingdom in an area not too dissimilar to the modern country of Portugal but including the original heartlands in the northwest of the peninsula at Galicia. The Visigoths under their ruler Theodoric II defeated the Suebi in battle, curbing Suebi ambitions to take control of more Roman lands in Hispania. Instead, it would be the Visigoths who would take control of much of the lands of Hispania. The Suebi would be confined to an area in northwest Iberia and eventually coerced into converting to Aryan Christianity. The Romans would be squeezed into the areas in the east. However, this was also a time when the Western Roman Empire was on the brink of its collapse and fall, so when King Euric ascended to the Visigothic throne, he would conquer all remaining Roman held territories in Hispania, signalling the end of Western Roman presence in Hispania. With vast territories including the southern half of Gaul and most of Hispania, the Visigothic Kingdom was now, by a considerable distance, the largest non-Roman territory of Europe. The Western Roman Empire fell in 476. There was a Roman rump state in the lands of the north of the modern country of France called the Kingdom of Soissons, 
which would fall to the Salian Franks around 10 years later, led by their legendary ruler, King Clovis. This would be the birth of the Frankish kingdom, and their conquest of Soissons brought the Franks to the Gallic borderlands of the Visigoths. King Clovis of the Franks would have imperial ambitions which brought him into conflict with all of his neighbours and this would inevitably give him the confidence to challenge the Visigoths. And the climatic battle came in the year 507, near the modern French city of Poitiers at the Battle of Rouillet. Frankish victory would see the Visigoths lose most of their Gallic lands including their original capital city, of Toulouse. The Visigoths would eventually establish a new capital city south of the Pyrenees at Barcelona, which as a modern city had been established by the Romans during their heyday. Visigothic Spain During the Franco-Visigothic Wars, we see one legendary ruler of the Franks, namely Clovis on one side, but we also see another legendary ruler supporting the Visigothic cause also. This man is known to history as Theodoric the Great and is possibly the greatest and most well-known king, but he was primarily the ruler of the Ostrogoths. Under Theodoric the Great, the Ostrogoths had very quickly moved in to take control of the Italian peninsula from their heartlands in Pannonia. At this point in Italian history, there was still a lot of Roman tradition in these lands, with the Roman Senate still existing to operate political affairs. So after the Western Roman Empire fell, the lands were taken over by the Germanic warlord called Odoacer, before being conquered by the Ostrogoths but the political management of these lands was still fundamentally Roman, despite foreign rule. When Odoacer took control of Italy, his position as the ruler of Western Roman lands was accepted by the Eastern Roman Empire, and therefore you can argue that the kingdom of Odoacer could be described as a continuation of the Western Roman Empire, and for the same reason the Ostrogothic kingdom could be described as the next continuation, especially when we learn that Theodoric the Great, the Ostrogothic leader, was also accepted by Eastern Rome as the Western Roman ruler. So when Theodoric the Great moved to take control of the Visigothic realm in the early 6th century, following the turmoil of their defeat in the Franco-Visigothic Wars, then Theodoric the Great found himself in control of a vast realm that stretched from the Atlantic Ocean in the west to the Balkan Peninsula in the east. Some describe him as a Western Roman Emperor, even though we can equally argue that the Western Roman Empire had ceased to exist by this time. Things fell into disarray for both of the powerful Gothic kingdoms after the lifetime of Theodoric the Great though. The Visigothic Kingdom had a bit of a succession crisis as the leaders were getting deposed or killed in battle frequently and the Ostrogothic Kingdom in Italy was now being targeted by the Eastern Roman Empire under its latest ruler Justinian the Great. Justinian would have his sights set on recapturing the lost Roman Empire by bringing it under Eastern Roman or Byzantine rule. 
he would look towards North Africa, Italy and Spain, initially sending his trusted military general, Belisarius, to do battle with the Ostrogoths in Italy. Justinian would then target Spain, taking advantage of the civil war between rival Visigothic rulers in the middle of the 6th century. He would be able to subjugate the lands in the south of the peninsula and the Balearic Islands, creating a Byzantine province of Spania. The Byzantines would not be able to penetrate any further north than the lands in the far south, however, but they would be able to stay in control of these Spanish territories well into the 7th century. During this time, the Visigoths would continue to do battle with the Suevi in the northwest as well as the Byzantines in the south. But the presence of the Byzantines meant that the Aryan religious principles of the Visigoths was now also subject to influence as some of the Visigothic kings supported conversion to the Orthodox Christian stoles observed since the Nicene and Chalcedonian Christian councils in the east. It is also interesting to note that the Visigoths had by this time moved their capital city from Barcelona in the north to the city of Toledo in the centre of the peninsula. The centre of the peninsula today is recognised as the location of the Spanish capital city of Madrid and although Madrid is believed to have been turned into a city by the Al-Andalus Muslims, there is certainly evidence of Visigothic occupation within Madrid. The city of Toledo is approximately 40 miles southwest of modern Madrid. Visitors to Toledo can still be treated to a beautiful looking city which displays its historical development and includes a cathedral that is, unsurprisingly, built in the Gothic style because after all, Toledo is a Gothic city. However, the Gothic cathedral is a much later creation and the Gothic reference is to its architectural style only, which can be discovered all over Europe from the late Middle Ages. The fact that this city was established and ruled by Goths is a pure coincidence only. By the middle of the 7th century, the Visigothic kingdom was now a Catholic kingdom, which controlled the entire Spanish peninsula, although there were some elusive lands in the Basque country in the far north which had their own unique political and cultural position in the rich fabric of Iberian history. The Visigoths had finally annexed the kingdom of the Suevi in 585 and forced the Romans out of the southern province of Spania during the 620s. Varying ethnicities existed in the Iberian Peninsula during this period thanks to the mixture of cultures, with the Visigoths ruling the peninsula and the remnants of the Roman populations that had existed from the centuries of Roman dominance. At this point, the Visigoths needed to try to ensure that the Roman populations felt respected, so the co-rulers Chinderswinth and his son Recaswinth created a Visigothic law code with the intention to standardise the citizenship of their population and remove the barriers between the ethnic Goths and ethnic Romans. The Roman families, which still made up the vast majority of the population, alongside the Gothic families, would all be treated as united Hispanians. Their work would spin off from the previous attempts of the great Visigothic king Luvigild, 
who played a large role in bringing the Visigothic kingdom to its peak during the 6th century. The Gothic language of the elite had largely been lost and replaced by the vulgar Latin languages that would evolve to become the modern languages of the Iberian Peninsula, including Spanish and Portuguese. So it is fair to say that the Visigoths did a lot to lead Spain and Portugal towards their modern identities and distinctions from France and Italy. Decline The traditional European populations such as the Romans and the Germanic tribes had dominated European territory for centuries and on occasion had been subject to incursions from steppe cultures such as the Huns. Even though the Visigoths had squeezed the Byzantines out of Iberia, they still held territory over the Strait of Gibraltar in the north of Africa and the modern country of Morocco. This was the period in history that the Byzantines were starting to lose their grip on the extremities of their vast empire thanks to decades of warfare with the Persians, meaning that they did not have the financial clout to support their armies against the expansion of Muslim dynasties that had emerged in Arabia in the 7th century and expanded their influence rapidly in the Middle East and North Africa. Muslims had attempted to besiege the Byzantine capital city at Constantinople without success and it is not clear whether the Umayyad Caliphate, who were the dominant Muslim dynasty of the period, turned their attention to Western Europe in a bid to ultimately reach Constantinople, as some chroniclers have suggested, even though there are many easier routes to take than the Iberian Peninsula. However, the Strait of Gibraltar represented the most narrow waterway of the Mediterranean Sea, and so European territory in Hispania may have been a more tempting prospect than attempting to conquer Sicily and the Italian Peninsula. It may have been that the Visigoths had underlying difficulties in maintaining peaceful relationships between their aristocracy and their general population, which may be highlighted by their constant revision of the law codes of the land, and resembles the struggles of early Athens and early Rome. How much of an influence that this would have in local populations embracing the invasion of a foreign power is unclear due to a lack of contemporary writing, from this region during the early 8th century. The Muslim landing on the Iberian Peninsula was at Gibraltar, named after the man who landed there, Tariq ibn Ziyad. It is believed that the Visigothic king was Roderick, whose rule was likely opposed by rival claimants, thereby highlighting the possible fractures within the Visigothic kingdom at the time. The chronicles of these events are sketchy, in some cases conflicting and also written generations afterwards, which leads historians to speculate many different things about how and why the Iberian Peninsula was invaded. It seems plausible that some populations of Hispania did not feel particularly loyal to their Visigothic rulers, especially as there was competition between Visigothic families for the crown. So whether the Umayyads had to take Hispanian territories by force or whether they were welcomed to some degree 
is unclear if we take a general overview of the evidence only. Some chroniclers do describe Muslims terrorising Hispanian populations. We can feel confident that the Islamic army would have been largely made up from Berber populations of North Africa and that Tariq himself is described as being of Berber origin. Tariq met the Visigothic King Roderick at the Battle of Guadalete in 711 and he defeated the Visigothic King, killing him and many nobles, which enabled the Umayyads to bring further military support to be able to press on deeper into Iberian territory. The fact that the Hispano-Roman ethnic population of the Visigothic Kingdom may have still simply felt like the poor subjects of the ruling Visigothic nobility may have contributed to the speed with which the Umayyad Muslims took large swathes of Iberian lands away from the Visigoths. One of the most important statesmen in the Visigothic court was a man called Pelagius. Pelagius was the grandson of Chindaswinth, the king of the Visigoths who had attempted to promote a national identity in Hispania to make the population feel loyal to the crown. Pelagius was exiled from Toledo by Vititza, a successor Visigothic king of his grandfather, and possibly the one ultimately deposed by the ill-fated King Roderick. Pelagius was confined to a territory in the north, geographically close to the Basque country, and was entrusted by his fellow surviving Visigothic nobles to represent their stance against Umayyad conquest. Much of Iberia was lost and Pelagius stood up to the Umayyads at the Battle of Covadonga, maybe around 10 years after the Umayyads' initial landing in Iberia. Pelagius was successful and despite the Umayyad conquest of the Visigothic Kingdom, governed out of Toledo, the Umayyads could not conquer this last portion of land in the north. Pelagius would become the ruler of this Visigothic ruled rump state that is referred to as the Kingdom of Asturias. The victory of Pelagius has been cited as the beginning of something called the Reconquista, which was a period of seven and a half centuries of Christian reconquest of their former Iberian lands that had been taken from them by Muslim forces. The kingdom of Asturias would be the forerunner to the future kingdoms of Leon, Castile and then Spain itself. So we can directly track the formation of the modern countries of Spain and Portugal directly to the conquest and occupation of Roman Hispania by the Visigoths in the first place. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode and thank you for being so patient with me uh, while I had uh, a couple of things that I needed to do in recent weeks and uh, was unable to broadcast. I hope um, that um, you enjoyed the unscripted episodes nonetheless 
We had a bit of a double header last weekend to make up for the gap in the in the broadcast, which I've I've not done before in the in the entire history of this uh, podcast series. Um, I've not missed a week, so I felt a little bit guilty, but then I got over myself pretty quickly because I thought to myself, actually, uh, I can't um, I can't beat myself up too badly about it. I've um, I've managed to publish a weekly episode every week, so. Um, I don't think there's a great number of history podcasters that, that have done that. Um, so um, I might be mistaken. There might be many others, but um, not the ones certainly that um, that I listen to. Um, having said that, um, I am pleased to be back and uh, focusing now um, on the on the Western European um, early medieval or Middle Ages. And um, and bringing some wonderful stories and and there's there's loads to come and next week's going to be no different. It's going to be a real sort of political battle royale um, as we uh, look at what happened in Italy after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The ancient World Cup. Well, um, we're back um, in the in the seat when it comes to the ancient world cup there was uh, a group this week that was being voted on uh, the group contained uh, the mighty huns those very exciting huns uh, one of the focal uh, groups of next week's podcast the ostrogoths um, the sumerians who were who were the very first episode of, of volume two so the first sort of known society um, of human history and uh, the Armenians, who um, I particularly enjoy, the Armenians and uh, and how they uh, how they manage themselves throughout this uh, throughout this incredible period between uh, the Romans and the Persians, and uh, how they were like the piggies in the middle. Um, let's um, see how the votes turned out. The winners of the group with sixty eight percent of the vote, a huge sixty eight percent of the vote, were the Sumerians. So um, incredible that really, when you consider that we had like a giant, like the Huns in that group, that the Sumerians absolutely blitzed it. So the Sumerians undoubtedly so, so popular for their place in our history and a very, very important place they hold as well. Uh, the runners up in the group with uh, 23% of the vote were indeed the Huns. So the Huns will feature again in this competition in the next round, um, which I'm sure will make a number of people happy. Um, This means that we lost uh, the Armenians, who only achieved 9% of the vote, and we also lost the Ostrogoths. And the Ostrogoths now hold a distinction. We didn't receive one vote for the Ostrogoths, and so they scored 0% and that is the first time that we've seen that so um, what a sad distinction from the Ostrogoths but um, listen is is the way the votes turned out and, and that's the end of that so um, we um, we congratulate uh, the Sumerians and the Huns for progressing in the competition um, next week it's going to be Group M so we're sort of starting to get get to the knockings now. We're into the last four groups of of the group stage of this tournament, and let's introduce you to the four teams in the uh, in next week's Group M, and they are the Medes, um, also known as the Medians, 
um, very important in uh, the final destruction of the Neo-Assyrian Empire um, alongside the Babylonians, so the Medes. Uh, we've also got the Anglo-Saxons, who were the occupants of um, Britannia after the Romans left. Um, they uh, sailed from overseas, over from Germanic lands, and settled in Britannia, um, and uh, eventually sort of become their own culture, the Anglo-Saxons. Um, then uh, we've got the Mauryans, who are the uh, the first real um, considerable um, uh, imperial movement of India, um, who were um, who were sort of led by Chandragupta. Um, who was the first Mauryan emperor. Um, and then um, after that, we've got the Olmecs, who were the first real um, known civilization of Mesoamerica and uh, were very uh, well known for, the, for their rubber ball games and those, and those strange giant heads that they constructed as well. So uh, there are four teams, the Medes, the Anglo-Saxons, the Mauryans and the Olmecs. Listener messages and reviews. Okay, so let's have a look and see um, who sent in messages to the History of the World podcast this week. Um, forgive me, I've. Do you know what? I always do this. I always introduce this section of the show and then realise that I've I've got absolutely no um, no material prepared. So I've, I'm just going to need to. Just log in here and, uh, you know, I, I should have learnt my lesson by now, shouldn't I? Um, firstly, um, I've got one from uh, Sarah Williams in New Zealand who's put, Hi Chris, just wanted to say I recently started listening to your podcast series while I do my hour of kickboard swimming in the pool. Two episodes a day and I'm completely hooked. I look forward to my swim so much the time goes by unnoticed while I listen to every word. Thank you, Sarah Williams, New Zealand. P.S. I have degrees in science and I study palynology and the geographies. I always wished I had been an Indiana Jones. I'm really enjoying your summaries of evolution. Um, studying palynology. I mean, I, I didn't even realise palynology was uh, palynology was a thing until I started writing this podcast, and, and how fascinating. Anyway, thank you, Sarah. Thanks for writing in all the way from New Zealand. Um, uh, Annie Ruda uh, Deshmukh um, um, has written in saying, Hi, Chris, I'm from Mumbai, India. I just finished listening to volume one of your podcast, all episodes and all unscripted, and now I'm listening to them again to get a deeper understanding of the same before I move to volume two and onwards. It's been fantastic and I have developed a keen interest. If you have the information, can you let me know where I can get to see the original, not casts, um, of fossils and other recoveries of the following? The late holy footprints, Lucy, Johnny's child, Nutcracker Man, Town Child, Turkana Boy, Java Man and Peking Man, we'll really appreciate it. Best regards. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, the, I mean, the only one that I've been to see is Lucy, uh, who is housed at the National Museum of Ethiopia in Addis Ababa. Um, having said that, the 
the um, the Lucy that's on display, that's in the display cabinet, is certainly not the original. It's a cast of the original, which is obviously being uh, stored in some very well-controlled conditions. Um, so whether um, there uh, whether uh, there are any official photographs of it or um, I don't know, but I think you may be better served speaking to someone who actually um, deals very exclusively in paleoanthropolo uh, paleoanthropology and um, has, a, has a deeper knowledge of each of those cases. Certainly, I, I covered them in the volume, but um, I really only know the stories and uh, don't know too much about the uh, acquisition of images of the original casts or the uh, I'll say the original fossils I should say so um uh, not sure how to help you with that unfortunately but um nonetheless a very kind email nice to hear from um someone from India so thank you um Norman Holler from uh, Whitehorse Yukon in uh, Canada has uh, written uh, it's February of the 22nd uh, it's February of 22 I'll, I'll get you now, I'll get where you're coming from. It's February of 22. I've listened to all the Volume 1 episodes. I applaud the effort that you must have put in to produce and present the series. Bravo. I've been feeding my interest in the genetic and cultural evolution of our species for many years by informing myself through podcasts like yours and through my readings, your podcast and Holden Wilson's History of Food podcast ended at episode 28, have been very informative and entertaining. My worldview is expanding, thank you. Just wanted to point out a small error in volume 2, episode 1. You described the 12 and 60 number base from the mathematical systems of time measurement. When describing time you included, they would have recognised that there were 60 seconds in a minute and 60 seconds in an hour. Small Virgil, uh, f sorry, small verbal version of a typo, and you might already be aware of it, but picking it up today got me putting this reach together as opposed to still wanting to. It's hard for me to imagine your story and motivation in doing the podcast, but I'm impressed and inspired to communicate an overview of my understandings of how the humanity stream flows and our individual roles in how we show up and impact our physical and psycho-social, psycho-spiritual worlds. Thank you again. Looking forward to uh, following all of the future episodes. Uh, to the good thoughts, Norman Holler. Well, thank you very much, Norman. And also, thank you so much for pointing out mistakes. Um, I'm sure this podcast... And I, I do review some of the podcast episodes and, and stumble across mistakes myself and... Um, Inevitably, um, when I'm sort of producing episodes at the rate that I am and um, without um, a production team behind it, let's say, um, it's inevitable that there's going to be errors and, and, and as such, there are going to be silly little verbal errors like that where it should, I, I should be saying 60 minutes in an hour and not 60 seconds in an hour. Um, but it's thanks to good people like you, Norman, that point these things out to me that enable me to correct the script. And then um, hopefully over time I might be able to re-record uh, a lot of the older episodes, um, you know, to uh, make them uh, a good comprehensive uh, guide and, and bring them up to the quality of the later episodes. So um, you've helped in uh, my 
in my quest to achieve that, Norman. So thank you very much indeed. Um, and uh, I think that's it. I, I did re also receive a message from Andres Altazar, who has asked me to cover a question that he has. I'm not going to do that this week. I'll, I'll cover it in a later week. I think I just need to um, sort of give myself a bit of a, a, a reminder in order to give you a good answer to your question. But Andres um, won that right by um, by donating to the History of the World podcast. And um, I do give out rewards to people who do make donations to the podcast. And, and a great many people do. And um, it's, it's an incredibly kind thing that the History of the World podcast community do. It's always going to be a free podcast um, and um, I thank you for your voluntary contributions, which, which does make it easy for me to produce this podcast, and it also uh, enables me to buy decent material with which I can, um, in which I can enhance the authenticity of the information that I'm giving to you, and, and give some good triangulated information. Um, I have a new um, patron of the podcast to welcome in and that is Diana Holt and uh, Diana you will become a new member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati an exclusive group created uh, in honour of all of you great people who do uh, make financial contributions it is gratefully received and uh, welcome in Diana welcome into our very special group let's have a look um, and see if anyone has messaged me through Facebook this week. Um, oh, Tori Snaper has written in saying, Chris, your podcast is fantastic. I'm on volume two and I started listening about two weeks ago on Spotify. I listen on my headphones while I'm working and I have not been able to stop listening since I started. Excellent job and I can't wait to get caught up on your current episodes to find out what else is new in the world of the History of the World podcast from Las Vegas, Nevada, USA. Thank you so much, Tori. That's a very, very kind message. So many kind messages. I, I, I love, and I would read them all out as long as they're not abusive or offensive. Uh, even the negative ones I'm happy to read out because they tend to be uh, quite revealing as well. So um, it just so happens that I've received so many kind messages, so many kindly written and complimentary messages so um and if it sounds like self-promotion it really is just um a desire for me to recognize those people who have written uh, kind reviews um going on to the apple podcast reviews cv1234 from the united states of america america's but great podcast i'm really enjoying this podcast chris has such a relaxing and clear way of speaking and is always interesting. He's very professional and entertaining, yet never becomes annoying by trying to be funny, as some podcasters do. I've, well, I could try, but I'd fail. Um, it's obvious he's smart and loves history. Thank you, Chris. Um, 215 Bully uh, from Great Britain has put essential listening to uh, for anyone with an interest in history. It really does do what it says on the tin, telling our story from the start of human existence with volumes planned right up to modern history. Each episode has been expertly researched and is presented in a non-biased and fun manner by Chris. These episodes are relatively short, normally around 30 minutes, with about 10 minutes after each episode. 
unscripted chat. Well, <laughs> yeah, not so much these days, unfortunately. You tend to go on and on. Um, and have enough chapter going, uh, have enough chapter gong sound effects to keep your attention. I'll get you, I'll get you. There are enough volumes already uploaded to have a good binge for a few months before you catch up like I have done. Then the only problem you'll find with this podcast is that it is uh, weekly and not daily. Uh, thanks very much uh, for that lovely review. And then finally, Kim Amundi from the United States of America has put just what I was craving. This is an excellent and addicting podcast. I always wanted an interconnected history of the world that draws both parallel and interdependent timelines across ancient cultures. I'm in season two and my only complaint is the amount of attention paid to British archaeologists. In my opinion, their contributions to archaeology are emphasised disproportionately from historians from other countries without acknowledgement of the extractive, exploitive nature of foreign archaeologists in the age of imperialism. With that being said, this is a small point, and I overall love listening to this podcast. That's a brilliant point you've raised there, Kim. And and it is true that um, certainly during the 19th century, um, the British had had basically the the uh, the influential swing, and also the uh, the financial ability to be able to somewhat monopolise. Um, scientific media and this is why I think we refer to British archaeologists so much is because their work was so heavily promoted uh, in order to get the edge over over other countries um, archaeologists it's a it's a it's an absolute fact uh, it's almost the, um, the you know, it's almost the, the origin of um, the the farcical um, Piltdown Man, which was really a, a British attempt to undermine uh, foreign archaeology. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's a really, really uh, strong and valid point, and, and and I love to be challenged in that manner. It's uh, it, it really does excite a um, very relevant debate about um, the way that we look at history. So thank you, Kim, and thank you for such a great review. On, uh, on that note, we're going to wrap up for this week. Next week, as I mentioned before, it's going to be the uh, story of Italy um, from um, the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 right up until the crowning of Charlemagne as the Holy Roman Emperor um, uh, around Christmas in the year 800. So we're going to be following uh, those three centuries of history there. So uh, not to be missed and uh, leads us very nicely into the uh, the very important history of the Franks, the early history of the Franks, which is going to be a series of episodes following on from that. So um, thanks a lot for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it this week, and uh, until next week, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.